Let's uh, turn in our Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 9. We're going to be covering verses 1 to 5. I titled this morning's message, Israel Past, Paul's Sorrow for Israel. Pretty amazing uh, chapters that we're going to be going into, uh, leaving chapter 8 and going into chapter 9. Actually, this next three chapters has been kind of divided up this way. Chapter 9 speaks about Israel past. Chapter 10 speaks about Israel present day. And chapter 11 is going to speak about Israel's future. We could also say that chapter 9 is about the election of God's people, Israel. In chapter 10, it could be about Israel's rejection of him. And then in chapter 11, we're going to learn that about restoration, that God is going to restore and he's going to save a remnant of his people, Israel. Israel, in looking at the nation of Israel today, uh, and, and just seeing their journey, seeing the path that the nation of Israel has been on through all of these years, centuries, and just seeing the path that they're on should give us as Christians this strong confidence in the promises of God. All you need to do is just spend time looking at the nation of Israel. And you'll realize how faithful God has been to this people, even when they've walked in disobedience. Even when they have walked in disbelief. God still remains faithful to the nation of Israel. That should give us that confidence as Christians. Anyone here ever walked in disobedience to God? Been unfaithful to God? You know, doubted God? And, and, and lacked in your confidence in Him? And then God still remains faithful to you. Israel is that picture of that. Unfaithful Israel and God remains faithful. We finished Romans chapter 8, and those last 10 verses, uh, particularly of chapter 8, uh, have been referred to as the mountaintop. Some call it the glistening on the diamond. It's, it's really the highlight of chapter 8. Remember, what we read in, in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I love those words. There's no one that we would rather have on our side than God Himself. Look at verse 33 of chapter 8. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Another great word for us to grab hold of. Look at verse 34. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who is he who condemns? No one can, can condemn you. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? The answer to all of them is no. Nothing, not anyone can separate us from the love of Christ. Look at verse 37. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than a conqueror. And Paul finished in verse 38 and 39. He says, for I am persuaded 
that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. I mean, that's it. Can you see why it's the mountaintop? After going all the way from chapter 1 and ending here at the end of chapter 8 with those kinds of words. But now we leave that mountaintop in chapter 8 and we leave it really with full assurance of our relationship with Jesus Christ. We have a victory shout, we could say, as Christians. But when we get to chapter 9 here, verse 1 and 2, it's some somber words of the Apostle Paul. It says, I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and a continual grief in my heart. From that mountaintop to these somber words now of the Apostle Paul. I know it's only speculation, but I think that when Paul ended chapter 8, there was probably a big sigh in his soul. I, I think for a moment that Paul probably paused in silence and maybe just contemplating all that he had written in those eight chapters about these incredible truths of salvation. Have you ever been overwhelmed with your own salvation? Just the greatness of your salvation. You know how God brought it all around. How He did that in you. How He brought you to that point where you said yes to Him. And for all of us, we should be overwhelmed with that thought. I know the Apostle Paul was with his own testimony. Just the thought of how great our salvation is should overwhelm us. But then as we begin to be overwhelmed and, and, and just to consider how great this salvation is, have you ever been overwhelmed with the thought and the reality of those people that you love that don't know Christ? Think about it. You're just basking in the glory of your salvation. And then all of a sudden, you start thinking, but there's people in my life that are so dear to me that I love so much, and they're lost. They have no hope. And Christ loves them like He loves me. But they haven't turned to Him I think that's what's happening with the Apostle Paul here. He's gone from this mountaintop to the thought and the reality that there are still people without Christ. People that need a Savior. And he starts thinking in particular about his own countrymen, the Jews, his fellow, his fellow brothers, his Jewish brothers. I shared in a past study that the Apostle Paul, he knew the right questions to ask. And the reason why he knew the right questions is because he was a Jew himself. He knew his audience as he was writing this letter to the Romans. He knew that he was writing to Gentiles and he knew that he was writing to Jews. He knew his fellow Jews and how they thought because he was one. He knew that the struggles that they had with this gospel of grace that, 
that the Apostle Paul was taking now to the world. These new truths about Christ being the Messiah, something that they struggled with and had a, a, a difficulty with. Paul knew in himself that no matter how glorious the truths were on those eight chapters that he just pinned down, no matter how glorious they are, and no matter how clear he presented the truths of, those, of that gospel, there would still be these question marks and these doubts that would arise in his fellow Jews. And even in the Gentiles, as they read about Israel and their rejection of Jesus Christ as Messiah. Romans chapter 9 through 11, they speak specifically about the spiritual condition of Israel. The Jew is in mind, and, but also the, the Gentiles, you and I, that are not Jews, we also benefit from knowing these truths. This plan of salvation that Paul has just laid out. This justification by faith that we, we talked about all the way through those eight chapters. One of the questions that Paul needs to answer in his Jewish brother's minds and even in the Gentiles' mind, if Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah, does that mean that God's promises are of none effect? Does that mean that God is going to renege upon the promises that He made? It's a natural thought that would run through their mind. In their rejection, has God just said, okay, go, okay. Let them all go. Let them all be condemned. They, they didn't believe in me. They had a chance. I'm done with them. There's a false teaching today. It's actually becoming more prevalent within the church. There are many churches today that hold to the view that God is done with Israel. That in their rejection, God has given them up. The term is called preterism. The word preterism in Latin means past. P-A-S-T. Simply put, a preterist is a person who maintains that the prophecies that we read in Scripture, in the Apocalypse, have already been fulfilled. So when you read your Bibles, and they read the book of Revelation, and they read Matthew chapter 24, they see all of the fulfillment of these things has already have been done. It's already passed. That's dangerous. You see, the preterists believe that all of these prophecies that were fulfilled in the past, that now it's really the church, you and I, that have replaced Israel. That all of the things that you read in Matthew chapter 24, and even in the whole book of Revelation, that all of that was fulfilled by A.D. 70, when Titus came in and, and ransacked Jerusalem and killed 1.2 million Jews and destroyed the temple, that all of these things were fulfilled by that time. But here's something else that they teach and believe. The preterists believe that God is finished with biblical Israel. That there is no prophetic future for the nation of Israel. There are people 
that it, 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 this is why it's so important because it'll affect many mainline doctrines that you know to be true, that you've come to know about prophecy, about Israel themselves, the Jews. It'll affect your thinking. So be careful when you see that word preterism, preterist, or reconstructionism. These are all, uh, these are all terms, modern-day theological terms that exclude the nation of Israel from God's plan. The Apostle Paul had this love and this desire for his fellow Jews. If you look ahead at chapter 10, verse 1, look what Paul writes there. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. <laughs> oh, wow. That's his heart's desire. Paul understood that they had rejected. He was once a rejecter. He was once a Pharisee. He was one that walked in his own efforts and his own flesh as a Pharisee, trying to keep the law. He understood their mindset. But his heart's desire and prayer to God was that they might be saved. For the Jew, God's chosen people, they all stood looking back in the Old Testament. They all stood looking back and they looked forward to a coming Messiah. They looked forward to a coming kingdom that was promised to them. Covenants were made with them by God Himself. To them, to their forefathers. They stood back and in their, in their eye they looked forward to this coming Messiah and kingdom. For the Gentile, New Testament. For those of us today, we as New Testament Christians, we turn around and we look backwards towards the cross, towards the finished work of Christ. We see it all done and all laid out. To the Jew, they look forward in faith. For us, New Testament, we look backwards towards the cross in faith. Why is this question of God's faithfulness and His plan for Israel so important to us as Christians? I think we could put it this way. Because if Israel's rejection, if it annuls the promises and the covenants of God, then we all, even as New Testament Christians, we could all be here today wondering whether or not through our inconsistencies, through our failures, through our times of disbelief, will God even reject us? You see, when you look at the nation of Israel, you see a God that is faithful. A God who cannot lie. A God who will never renege upon His promises and His covenants. It's important for us to know that as Christians. It's also important to know that these next three chapters, that they're not really a new subject to the eight that came before it. It's really, if you want to say, Paul explaining how God is able to save people. We might say that these three chapters of Paul's are the argument for justification by faith. Remember the first eight chapters, it was all that, if we were to put it into one sentence, justification by faith. And now it's the argument for it. And he uses his own people, the Jews, for that argument. Paul, who was a Jew himself, had this great passion for his fellow Jews. 
He wanted to see him saved. He had this zeal that was put into his heart by God. He knew that Jesus Christ was their only hope. He knew that this, this, this message, this gospel of grace, was something that they needed to grab hold of. He did. We know that if you took the whole 28 chapters of the book of Acts, you could really divide it into two halves. You see, Peter had a special calling upon his life. He was the apostle to the Jews. Paul came to find out that he was going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And so, one of the things that's important for us to understand when Paul's writing this letter to the Romans, and when he's writing the way that he's writing, there were some Jews that had a real struggle with the Apostle Paul. They, they heard this new doctrine that he was coming out with, and they didn't like it. As a matter of fact, they sought to kill him on a number of occasions for it. The Apostle Paul was becoming the enemy of Judaism. But that didn't sway Paul. He had this passion for his people. He knew that they had these spiritual blinders over their eyes. He wanted them to see and to come to know the truth. In Romans 11.1, 1, we might say, this is a key question that Paul asks. He says, I say then, has God cast away his people? The answer to that is certainly not. God hasn't cast away Israel. God still has an active plan for the nation of Israel. You can read a little bit about and get a little bit of an insight into way, the way that the Jews looked at Paul, how they understood him, when you read Acts chapter 13. You see, Paul came into this, this city. He came to Antioch and Pisidia, and he went into a synagogue on the Sabbath one day. And after coming into the synagogue, he sat down and he began, uh, after the reading of the law and the prophets, somebody would have stood up and read that like they normally did. That all of a sudden they realized the Apostle Paul was in their midst. And they said, men and brethren, if you have a word for us, and for the people that are here this day, then say on. And we read that Paul stood up in the midst of this group of Jews and Gentiles alike that were in that synagogue. And he motioned with his hand and he said, men of Israel and you who fear God and those that fear God were the Gentiles that would have been there. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. And after he had given them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet, and afterwards they asked for a king, and so God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them king, David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart will, who, who will do my will. For this man's seed, and this is important to know, from this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. Now, how do you think that sounded in their ears? A promise. 
That promise was going to come through the line that they held so dear to. King David, their deliverer, everything, he rehearsed to them what they knew. He says, men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, those among you who fear God, speaking to the Gentiles, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and, the rule, and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which you read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning Jesus. Paul was pointing right at them. They were being pierced. And he wasn't making any friends right now with them. They were there in disbelief. Paul went on. And he said many other things to them, but one of the other things he said, therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, speaking about Jesus, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, by Jesus, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. You see, that was piercing their heart. Paul, you're taking it a step. You're speaking now of something that is trumping Moses and our law. And you're saying that Jesus is the one in whom we can be justified. They were getting stirred. Beware, therefore, Paul says, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were declared to you. And then we're told, so when the Jews went out of the synagogue, we're told that the Gentiles, they begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Do you see what's happening here? to all that are hungry, to all that want to know the truth, whether they are Jew or Gentile, here's the Gentiles saying, we want to hear more. The Jews were told they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They, they opposed the things that were spoken by Paul. They were upset. I say all of this for what we're going to read now in our text this morning. You see, Paul came at this point because they rejected Paul's gospel message. The Jews that left that day, they, Paul says, you judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. And behold, we turn to the Gentiles. How do you think that sounded? Gentile law. We turn to the Gentiles. They're the ones that want to come back and hear. But the Jews, they were stirred up and they expelled Paul and Barnabas. But Paul and Barnabas were told they shook off the dust from their feet against them and they, they left that city that day. Now look at our text. Chapter 9. Verse 1, I, Paul, tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and a continual grief in my heart. Paul had this great burden for his fellow Jews. He calls them in verse 3, my brethren. He calls them my countrymen. It's amazing, isn't it? What God can do in the heart of a man or a woman who loves God with all their heart, soul, and mind. Look what He's done in you. Look how he's made it so that you care about what's happening, or at least should, to people that don't know Christ. That's a work of God. Paul had this, this great sorrow and this continual grief in his heart 
for his brothers, the Jews. But God had called him to the Gentiles. But that doesn't mean that Paul didn't have this longing and this desire to see his brothers saved. What's being said here in this great sorrow and this continual grief in his heart. Literally, it's saying, my sorrow is great and the anguish in my heart is unceasing. In other words, Paul's just sitting there as he's now going into chapter 9 and continuing to write this letter, being overwhelmed with the thought that there are so many of my own brethren that have rejected this gospel. This good news of justification by faith. Jesus being the Messiah. This great sorrow is defined as, as distress or pain in our mind. It's sadness that Paul was experiencing then. This continual grief was unceasing. In other words, it drove Paul to his knees quite often to pray for his brother. When's the last time that you got on your knees for somebody that you love so dearly and, you, and you're heartbroken over the fact that they continue to reject? Paul had this heart that was full of anguish. It drove him to prayer. It was, it was almost like the heart of our Lord. It's, God, give me that heart. Like, like Jesus, when He saw the multitude, we're told that He was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and they were scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. That was our Lord towards His own people, the Jews. Paul goes from chapter 8 to chapter 9, feeling the need to say this to his fellow Jews, that I'm not lying. (laughs) Why would he have to say that? I'm not lying or I'm truthful in what I'm about to say. I'm not being deceitful when I say what I'm about to say. My conscience also is bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. In other words, my sorrow and grief for you, it's real. It's truth-telling. My conscience, Paul says, is ruled by the Holy Spirit. And it tells me that I'm not lying when I say this. Paul knew his countrymen. He knew that they would question him. He he knew that they were thinking, is this even real? Is Paul being truthful in what he's saying? Look what he says in verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ. For my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. I could wish that I myself were accursed. Let me ask you, could you say that? Accursed from Christ for my brethren, the Jews, according to the flesh. Paul is really saying in this word wish, my wish, my prayer to God, if somehow it were even possible that I could be separated or cut off from Christ, I would do that for you. Paul knew that it wasn't impossible, but I don't think that Paul said it with hypocrisy. I believe that he meant what he said. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness that I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. That's a heart that's been changed. Would you have given up your physical life? Would you have given up your spiritual life for some ungodly person in this world? 
Somebody that was rejecting everything that you had to say to them. Somebody that turned you down time after time as you sought to share the Gospel. That I would be accursed from Christ for you. Anathema is what one translation gives, which means estrangement from Christ. Being separate, really being condemned to hell. It's pretty incredible. Those reading this letter from Paul may have thought that Paul's ministry to the Gentiles now meant that salvation was only for believing Gentiles. Is that what you're saying, Paul? That this new gospel that you're coming out with, that is really just for the the believing Gentiles? It's not for us unbelieving Jews, is it, Paul? Well, Paul's going to prove to them that that's not the case. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ, for my brother, my countrymen, according to the flesh. And then look what it says in verse 4 and 5. Who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom according to the flesh Christ came, who is over all the eternal blessed God. Amen. Paul says, let me tell you differently. You're Israelites. Israelites are those that are descendants of Abraham through Jacob. God changed Jacob's name when he had striven with God and with men and he prevailed over that. We read in Genesis 32:28, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. God had a plan from the very beginning for the nation of Israel. None of this took God by surprise. God didn't just one day, wow, they messed up. They missed the point. They missed me. He knew they would reject. But look what he says to them. Look what Paul writes to them. Look what Paul is reminding his fellow Jews about. Who are Israelites? to whom pertain the adoption. Literally, that word adoption means you have been placed as sons in God's eyes. You've been adopted. Do you know that that's said of us New Testament Christians? You've been adopted into the family of God. In the book of Exodus, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, Moses, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Is God going to be faithful to his people? Yes, he is. Hosea 11.1, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. He says, not only have you been given this adoption, my fellow brothers, but you also have experienced and seen the glory of God. Remember Moses at the burning bush. Moses and the people of God as they stood there at the, on Mount Sinai and saw the glory of God as it burned there on the mountain. Moses in the tabernacle experienced the glory of God. We read in Exodus 40:34, then the cloud that 
covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God's presence was there. The people knew it. Moses knew it. When they stood there at the Mount, Mount Sinai, it says that the, the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. They saw it. The glory of God, the power of God being demonstrated. Paul is reminding them, you've been adopted. You've experienced. You've seen the glory of God. You've seen that Shekinah glory in the pillar of cloud when you wandered in the wilderness for those 40 years. God protected you. His presence was there with you. You saw my glory. And not only that, brothers, but the covenants were given to you to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Also the covenant that God made with Moses. Also the covenant that God made with King David. He's given you all of these covenants and all of these promises. Has God forsaken His people? Has God turned away from His covenant? No, He hasn't. Genesis 15, 18, on the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. In chapter 17, verse 2, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. God's promise. God makes that covenant and gives the sign of circumcision to, as that sign to them of my covenant that I made with you, my people, my adopted children, my sons. That's just the covenant that God gave to Abraham in regards to the seed and in regards to the land that he promised it, that I will be your God. He said, I also made a covenant with Isaac. But my covenant, Genesis 17, 21, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Isaac had two twin sons, Esau and Jacob, and these two nations that are in your room, two people are going to be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. I made a covenant also with Isaac. I also made a covenant with Jacob. Genesis 32, 28. And God said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. Israel means, by definition, governed by God. The problem is, is that Israel, in their rejection and in their disobedience, they were no longer being governed by God. But because of these covenants, because of these promises that God made, God is still going to be faithful to unfaithful Israel. Doesn't that give you great hope? He says, and not only that, my brothers, I gave you the law, or the law was given to you. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 13, we read, you came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from the heaven and, and you gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. You're a unique people. You're a special people to me. I gave you my word. I gave you my laws. And I only gave them to you. Remember what Paul said to the Jew in chapter 2 of Romans, verse 17. He says, Indeed, you are called a Jew, and you rest on the law, and you make your boast in God, and know His will, and you approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and you're confident that you're a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having a form of knowledge and of the truth. 
But then he goes on to say to his fellow brothers, his Jews, he says, you have all these things that were given to you, but you tell people that you shouldn't steal. Do you steal? You say you should not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You abhor idols. Do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law. Do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you. You see, God is serious about His law. God is serious with what He has given to His people. But here's the thing, it's not because they were a faithful people that God will save a remnant of Israel. It's because God made promises. God made covenants with His people. He says, and not only that, brethren, you also had the service of God like the Gentiles didn't have. You had the ability to go actually into the temple and to be used of God in His service. Remember, I've shared in the past that the pride of Israel was their land. It still is today. The pride of Israel is the land, it's their law, the law that God had given them, and the temple. Those three things. Every Jew, that's the pride of Israel, those three things. What advantage does a Jew have? What profit is there in circumcision? Paul says, much in every way, chiefly because to you were committed the oracles of God. But with that, Israel, you have a great responsibility with what I've given to you. He goes on to say, and promises were given to you, brothers, of whom are the fathers, and from whom according to the flesh Christ came. Now he's getting to the point. He says, you have promises, brothers, that were given specifically to you by God. And you have fathers, the forefathers to look to. You listened to them. You heard from them. You saw what God did through them. But it's through them, according to the flesh, that Christ came. And you're missing Him. Paul, speaking to the Gentiles, said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, he says, Therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircum uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that in that time you Gentiles were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. In other words, <laughs> you had no part in God's plan at one time. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Every, all these things that God had given to His people Israel. You were strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. That was the state of the Gentiles. But then we realized, and Paul came to realize, that the Gentiles have a part in God's plan. The promises that were given to Israel, that the Messiah looking forward to the coming Messiah, the promise that was given to them, they missed. They didn't see it. But what we know to be true is that God will be faithful to the nation of Israel in spite. That's why when you read your Bibles prophetically, we're going to see that during the tribulation period, it's primarily for that 70th week of Daniel that God is going to once again intervene into the affairs of the nation of Israel in a very powerful and direct way. And He is going to save a remnant of His people 
in spite of themselves because he loves them. They're the apple of his eye. And God loves his people, Israel. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, we read, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Isn't that a unique place to be as a God? You know, we say we swear on so-and-so or by so-and-so. Well, who's God going to swear by? He had to swear by himself because there's no one greater than him. Saying, surely, blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after Abraham had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for the confirmation is from them an end of all dispute. In other words, if I say I swear on something, they, they're hoping that you're going to believe me. Thus God determined to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, by a covenant that he made, by a sign saying to the nation of Israel, I will be faithful to you. Incredible. We're going to be going through Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. Paul is going to make that argument to his own brothers, the Jews, that God is going to be faithful to you, that salvation comes through Christ, that it's apart from works. And what we're going to see is that this whole issue of justification by faith, it continues all the way into Romans 9, 10, and 11. It didn't end in chapter 8. He's now going to just show us and bring up the argument. And I, he says, I'll use you as an example, Israel. That God is ultimately going to justify by faith and faith alone. Who is overall? Paul finishes this section today. Who is overall? the eternal, blessed God. Amen. Is there any verse that really says it more direct than that? Who is overall speaking of Christ? Jesus our Lord. The eternal, blessed God. Is Jesus God? Paul said so in a very direct way right here. The eternal, blessed God. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com. From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word.